Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to today's fashion history mystery, which dress listeners, I am very sad to say is not only our last FHM, but it's our very last episode of Dressed. I know, it's very upsetting. We have had the most amazing last three years with all of our beloved listeners, and I can't even say it enough how much this breaks our hearts, but we are actually super excited to share with you that we have decided to pursue something that we have always, always wanted to do, right, April? And that is fashion design. That's right. And we are so excited to share that we have started our very own sustainable ethically sourced Casper line of Chatelaines, which will be hitting the stores next month. Some of you may remember from our Chatelaine episode that it, you know, this was, you know, kind of the historical fanny pack of the time, but we have updated it for the modern era. And we just wanted to say that it's with such heavy hearts that we have to say goodbye. This will be our last podcast. And on that same note, deep down in my heart, we, of course, are entirely joking. April April Fools. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, today, dress listeners, if you are listening to this on Thursday, is April 1st, or more importantly for today's purposes, April Fools. And what better way to celebrate this unofficial holiday of jokesters and pranksters than with trying to fool our very own April? Say moi. And also our very own cast. So welcome to the very first edition of April and Cast Fool's Day, and we're going to have a ton of fun today trying to fool each other with some fashion history facts, fictions, mysteries. And I think that because Cass and I have not talked about any of this beforehand, we kind of structured how we're going to do this a little bit differently. I think Cass is going to have some scenarios from fashion history, and then she's going to ask me to try to figure out which stories are fact and which ones are fake. Whereas I, on the other hand, have created a multiple choice quiz based on primary source quotes. Ooh, it's going to be fun. And actually, dress listeners, we're, of course, inviting you to play along with us. So Mm -hmm. hopefully um, you can play along, take some notes and write to us and let us know how well you did. And I'm I'm super curious to see how well I am going to do. Same. (laughs) What if we we both just bomb this? (laughs) It's very possible. But I mean, especially for mine, I would just say just listen to the stories that I'm telling you and kind of, you know, does it sound right to you? Does it does something seem a little weird? Um, you know, they're not all very easy. So I do try to put a little, you know, a couple tricks up my sleeve in honor of April Fool's. So I'm going to put on my dress detective hat. Yes, put on your dress detective hat. Uh, so here we go. We have a newspaper article from February 24th, 1966, and it's entitled Mob More Miniskirts, Women in Paris pelted with eggs, police rescue two in Madrid. So I'm just going to read you this short article that appeared in the New York Times. Okay. It says, incidents of public disturbance accompanying the appearance in the streets of women wearing the new miniskirt fashion occur daily. That Avenue de l'Opera was a scene of one of the more serious of these outbreaks. 
The woman, having been surrounded by a laughing, jeering crowd, was unable to proceed, and a man taking advantage of the situation purchased a basket of eggs from a dealer in a side street, distributed them among the men who, in order to show their disapproval of what they considered unladylike conduct, proceeded to pelt the helpless wearer of the new garment until a squad of police intervened and aided the woman to escape in an automobile. Doubts appear to have arisen among the leading Paris dressmakers as to whether the skirt will be adopted by women as a general fashion. Few have been ordered thus far, and these have gone chiefly to women from abroad who were shopping here and wish to take home the latest sensation. Many models have been sent to prominent houses dealing in women's wear in New York City and article. So April, dress listeners, is this fact or fiction? I'm gonna go with fact, because as we talk about on dress time and time again, you know, the policing of women's bodies and what they wear, uh, it just doesn't stop. Go back to our swimwear episodes um, where women were literally arrested for, for wearing swimsuits, which were considered too skimpy at the time. And so I'm gonna say fact on that one. Well, April, I'm going to give you another hint before oh, no. we before I reveal um, <laughs> if this is fact or fiction. This is the closing part of the article. The newspapers publish medical opinion on the new style. Some attest that the miniskirt afford the wearer freer movement and walking and furnishing less resistant to the winds. Other opinions to the contrary are expressed. Professor DeBeeve, formerly Dean of the Academy of Medicine, affirms in the Matan that such garments are not adapted for women's wear. Wait, they are not adapted for women's wear? What do they mean by that? Well, that would be because this actual article is from 1911, and it's not written about the mini skirt, but I substituted mini skirt for, do you ah, want to take a guess? The hobble <laughs> skirt. No, the trouser skirt, oh. but very close. Yep. Yeah, because yep. the hobble skirt was like, maybe like the next year. It was like 1912-ish, right? Yeah, 1910, 1911 is the same era of the hobble skirt. And actually, Poiré, who is famously associated with the trouser skirt, said that he created the trouser skirt as kind of a reprieve from the hobble to kind of give women more freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, this is from 1911. This is purportedly true. Um, women were repeatedly harassed. We've read this time and again in news numerous newspaper articles that women were harassed for wearing pants in public. Um, and these trouser skirts weren't even like what we would think of pants today. They were hidden under, you know, kind of hidden under a skirt, um, at least some of the instances. Yeah, you could barely even tell that they had, they were bifurcated at all. They, they, they were entirely covered for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And there were definitely some instances like Bashoff David, which is another couture house that also claims that they invented the uh, this garment, Um alongside Poiret, um, Marguerite Lacroix. There's a bunch of couturiers who state claim to it, more of the avant-garde couturiers. They did produce more like actual trousers and Poiret did too, but his were really meant to worn inside the home. So, you know, the brazenness of these women to wear them in the streets. But you made like a really good observation that the policing of women's bodies, there's tons of parallels to be made between the 1960s mm -hmm. and the 1910s because people had plenty to say about women wearing miniskirts in the 1960s. Yeah. Women were barred from we wearing pants to restaurants in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> 
I think you made a very good educated guess. Ah, well, thank you. Um, okay, so that's really funny that your first thing was about skirts because my first thing is also about skirts. So um, I just want to say all of my questions here today are actually from real primary source quotes. So I'm going to read you the quote or I'm going to set up the scenario cast and then I'm going to give you multiple choice, four choices as to who said this quote. Okay. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay. Quote, yes, I am against short skirts. On entering the reception room of my establishment, I see many clients seated against the wall. It is nothing but an exhibition of legs, a sad sight, short skirts. Hmm. The most mild thing I can say about them is that they are unbecoming. So, here are your choices. I know I already have a couple, but let's see. <laughs> Choice A would be Charles Frederick Worth. Choice B, Cristobal Balenciaga. Choice C, Paul Paré. Or choice D, Coco Chanel. Oh, no, that's hard because I don't think it's Worth. Worth died in the 1890s, pre any shortening of skirts. Um, so I'm going to take him off the table. Okay. Um, but Poiré did not like to see women's ankles. And I know that for a fact. Um, He did not like short skirts. (laughs) And I would think Chanel would have been against them to a point too, because especially in the 50s and 60s, obviously this quote is, I think, from the 60s. It could be from the 20s. But if it's from the 60s, then you have Chanel didn't reopen her establishment. No, she reopened it in the 60s. Okay, it could be Chanel. I don't know. I do not associate Chanel with mini skirts. And she had very particular opinions on of what women <laughs> wore. And Balenciaga, this was the end of his heyday in the 1960s. He was not, he was not feeling it. Uh, the youth quake styles and the mini skirts. Okay, um, so. I'm going to go with my gut. And this was the first name that popped into my head when you started reading it. And I'm going to say it's Balenciaga. Okay, final answer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it is C, Paul Paré. Okay. This is an interview from 1925 with him in Harper's Bazaar, where he's talking about um, very much disliking short skirts. So okay. Yep, that is, yep, yep. that is, that is, um, <laughs> I put the first question as a Poiré question because he's your fave. <laughs> yes, Paré is definitely one of my favorites. And like I said, he, and as you just attested to, you tricked me because as we know, mini skirts were in the 60s and skirts in the 20s were considered short because they went above two or above a woman's knee. So mm-hmm. yeah, very good job. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. One more for you. Which of the following designers called Yves Saint Laurent their, quote, spiritual heir? A, Christian Dior, B, Hubert de Givenchy, C, Coco Chanel, or D, Karl Lagerfeld? Their spiritual, Yves Saint Laurent was their spiritual heir. Mm-hmm. So he was the heir to their spiritual Spiritual ethics. heir. Mm-hmm. So can you do that one more time? Sure. Which of the following designers called Yves Saint Laurent their, quote, spiritual heir? A, Christian Dior, B, Hubert de Givenchy, C, Coco Chanel, or D, Karl Lagerfeld? 
Well, I want to say Christian Dior because Yves Saint Laurent was working at Christian Dior when Dior died in 1957 and then took over for him. No, but I don't know. I don't know how much Dior actually talked about Yves Saint Laurent. Am I right that he worked there? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Before he took over the house, um, his very short-lived run of Dior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Givenchy was a cont- also a contemporary. Karl Lagerfeld was a contemporary of Yves Saint Laurent. So I don't think it's Karl Lagerfeld. I don't think Lagerfeld gives much credit to many designers. Um, and so that leaves who? Coco Chanel, Givenchy, Dior. So not Dior. So it's either Givenchy or Coco Chanel. I'm going to... I'm Givenchy designed well into the... Decades. I guess Coco Chanel. I have no idea. It was Christian Dior. (laughs) Dang it. Go with your instincts, I guess. See, that was like the obvious answer. So I was just really trying to trick you there. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because I wanted you to overthink that one. And I did. So I'm going to stop overthinking (laughs) it. I I said Poiré first on the other one. And I said Dior first on this too. And then I completely talked myself out of it. So, um, okay. All right. Let's get on from this embarrassment. We've actually done poorly, you and I. (laughs) Well, I think part of this is because we know each other so well. Yeah. So it's like easy to trick each other. And we're also making educated guesses. So it's not like they're completely off base. And hopefully our listeners are still learning something despite us not being able to answer correctly. (laughs) We're doing a really good job. So my next item of business is um, on Paul Poiré. As we know from our past episode on the avant-garde French haute couturier, he famously declared that he freed the bust while shackling the legs. So it's really speaking to the paradoxical nature of two of his early 20th century innovations. So he's, you know, famous for being one of these handful of haute couturiers who quote-unquote freed women from the corset with those high-waisted columnar gowns that really revealed the natural contours of a woman's body. And then he followed that up in 1910-1911 with something we just talked about, the so-called hobble skirt that literally prevented women from taking large strides and from Mm -hmm. walking. Yeah, You could rip your skirt if you weren't careful very easily. And researching for this episode, I realized we could literally do an episode just about hobble skirts and the uh, jupe culotte, the skirt, pant skirt because it's such a fascinating period, um, very short period in history. But anyways, I digress. And, and it was very, um, there was a ton of coverage in the yes. press at the time because it would cause a sensation. So sensational and uh, controversial. So, I mean, let's just say paradox, pare, man was an enigma to say the least. So now you get to decide April, dress listeners, knowing <laughs> what you know of pare. Is this March 1914 ad from Harper's Bazaar fact or fiction? Okay. So this is actually a corset ad from uh, Harper's Bazaar, March 1914. And it is for a corset manufacturer, an American corset manufacturer known as Bien Jolie Corsets. And they feature a letter from Poiret and they publish this letter. And the letter says uh, it's from Paris, November 18th, 1913. 
And Poiré writes, I take pleasure in advising that in recollection of our delightful conversations on the Lusitania while coming back from America, I am sending you two models for corsets. Also two models for soutien-georges or bus supporters, which I have specially designed for you and which correspond to the latest cry in fashions just now. I'm quite sure that corsets and brassieres worked out in this marvelous tissue, which is known as Grecian Treco, of which you have the exclusive sell and distribution, will meet with very unusual favor. For my part, I will have them worn by my mannequins, and I am convinced that they will at once be adopted by all my patrons. I feel sure that they will meet with the same success among Americans. I am delighted to have had the opportunity to be of some service to you, and I beg you to accept my friendliest remembrances and my kindest regards, signed Paul Paré. And they go on to quote Paré. They say, only when there is a logical unity between gown and corset will the ensemble be one of beauty and expression. Uh, They say, this is the dominating principle of Monsieur Paul Paré, acknowledged to be the greatest French designer and the most advanced exponent of women's fashions. Monsieur Paré, who only makes a corset to express the individuality of a costume, sees in Biangeli corsets a corset true to the individual type. So tell me, April, is this ad fact or fiction? Well, before we get to that, I would just like to say that I would like to use the name Grecian Treco as my code name from now on. (laughs) It's kind of amazing. Um, I'm going to go with it being fact because even though despite that Paré is well known for kind of being one of those earlier designers to make I like to call it corset optional designs. I've seen ads for Lucille, who, who was kind of selling corsets um, around the same time. And she was also on that same bandwagon and claimed to have abolished the corset. I also know that in the teens, Paré was doing a lot of licensing. And he did do a really big tour of America in 1912. So it is feasible that he had met this manufacturer on the way back to France. So in 1912, and maybe it took him this long to get this licensing deal up and going. So I'm going to say it's fact. And you are correct. So Pari did do a tour of North America in 1913. Oh, 1913. Okay. I mean, one year, what are we going to do, right? (laughs) He lectured, he did a tour across America. He lectured for thousands of people. Um, You know, he's a really famous haute couturier at this point. And he, as April said, he made deals with several American businesses, um, licensing his name to everything from corsets to cigarettes. I think I sent you one of the Poiré cigarette ads. Yeah. Um, And that reference to the individual type in the corset ad, where they say um, a corset true to the individual type, That is actually taken directly from one of Poiré's lectures during which he implored women not to be sheep, but to wear dress um, and dress styles that really spoke to their own assets and individuality. So you make a good point with Lucille too, April. And there's this fabulous book by Nancy Troy, which I don't know if you've read called Couture Culture. Of course, it's on my bookshelf. Yes, mine too. And it's such a fantastic book 
book, an insight into the business practices of Parisian haute couturiers during this time and the way in which they really negotiated their proclamations of artistry and individuality and and originality with the realities of commerce in early 20th Mm -hmm. century. Because despite Poiré saying, you know, I'm an artist, not a dressmaker, he was in the business of making money. They all were. (laughs) And so they really almost, they put up this front of selling one-of-a-kind creations, but really where they made so much of their money was selling copies of their designs to Mm -hmm. Americans. So licensing one, you know, just one design, they would buy one makeup, one model. And then that gave them the license to reproduce it in America. And then obviously he's not going to tell people he's doing all these ready to wear things or he's, you know, making money in all these ways because that would conflict with his image. But guess what? He was totally doing it and he was not alone. So good job. The myth of exclusivity. Exactly. And I just want to point out that Cass and I did not talk about any of this beforehand. So it's very interesting that my next quote has something to do with being copied. So (laughs) here we go. (laughs) My confidence level is low. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Quote, the worst thing that can happen to a designer is not to be copied. For fashion means one thing, disseminating a successful idea. And if the idea spreads, it is not because of the designer, but because of the public's appreciation of it. Okay, good. I'm going to read you the options. A, Mary Quant. B, Paul Poiré. C, Elsa Schiaparelli. D, Lucille. Thank God you didn't say Haas, because if you said Elizabeth Haas, I would have been super... Conflicted. Okay, read the (laughs) quote one more time, and I I do think I know who said this, but who knows? The worst thing that can happen to a designer is not to be copied. For fashion means one thing, disseminating a successful idea. And if the idea spreads, it is not because of the designer, but because of the public's appreciation of it. I think it's Mary Quant in the era of democratizing fashion. Okay, final answer? Yes. It was Paul Paré in 1933 in an issue of VU magazine. His fashion house had already closed at that time. He was still kind of like doing other stuff and had his hands in lots of pots, doing some acting then. And and again, this is all a coincidence that all of this has been about Paré. We did not talk about this ahead of time. And just the fact, the sheer fact that he's saying that the worst thing that can happen is not to be copied is completely ironic given the fact that when he came back from that 1913 tour in America, he basically lost his mind because while he had been entering official licensing deals, when he was in America, he saw all this stuff with his name on it that was not his at all. He was completely knocked off. Off, and he was so incensed that he came back to France and basically organized this whole like like organization to fight copyright and piracy. So I just thought that that was really interesting that 20 years later he completely reverses his opinion on this. Yeah, and I mean speaking of that, I still think to this day that designers you can't trademark a design. You can't there you still don't have intellectual property rights to like design specifically and that's like constantly being debated in courts like Christian Louboutin's use of the red heel and somebody I think Yves Saint Laurent knocked or did a red-heeled shoe and they were in court and like all of these like you can't trademark a specific design element, I guess. It's um, it's very tricky. 
Yeah, super tricky. We should have Ariel, our dear friend Ariel, come on at we some will, point to we talk will. about fashion law because yeah. it's super interesting. But yeah, it, like I said, Poiré is a paradox. That man is so interesting. If you're interested in learning more about him, as you know, dress listeners, we did an episode on him. Um, but his memoir is super fascinating too because, you know, he died really uh, as an, an artist alone and impoverished mm-hmm. um, after, you know, this kind of great meteoric rise to success. He's such a fascinating individual as <laughs> our um, repeated <laughs> repeated references to him throughout <laughs> today are. Um, and he never ceases to surprise me. So, okay, I am zero for three and you are one, one. For, uh, no, I didn't get the first one right. Yeah, you've got one wrong uh, and one yeah. correct. Yes, and I'm, yes, ze- yes. I'm zero out of three. So go okay. ahead with your fourth one. Okay. So <clears throat> uh, when asked what peers this designer admired, this designer responded, quote, Balenciaga, there's no doubt about it, then Vionnet and Chanel. She was a great girl, and she achieved the incredible feat of doing the same thing for 50 years. Your answers? Can you repeat that one more time? Sure. When asked what peers this designer admired, this designer responded, quote, Balenciaga, there's no doubt about it, then Vionnet and Chanel. She was a great girl, and she achieved the incredible feat of doing the same thing for 50 years. So your options are A, Yves Saint Laurent, B, Elsa Scaparelli, C, Hubert de Givenchy, or D, Pierre Cardin. Oh my God. I have no idea, April. I'm just going to go with my first gut, which was Yves Saint Laurent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you why I picked this quote. Because it is super freaking shady. It was Scaparelli. And Scaparelli and Chanel hated each other. Like, they completely hated each other and were always, like, bagging on each other. So this is all shade. She says, Chanel, she was a great girl, and she achieved the incredible feat of doing the same thing for 50 years. April, she's calling her out. (laughs) We cannot make this up, dress listeners, because guess what my next quote is about? (laughs) This rivalry. (laughs) This is hilarious. You, we can't make this up. And you're we've absolutely been, we've right. Been, we've been working together a long time. We know how <laughs> each other's minds work. So I'm going to turn to Vogue editor Bettina Ballard's memoir, In My Fashion. Um, who, Which is she amazing. Writes, it's so good. I just started revisiting it for this episode, and I'm going to reread it because it's so, so good. Yeah, you can and also get it on Kindle now. That's what like, I just, yeah. I, I have it on it my phone. Yeah. $9, and I'm going to mm-hmm. read it today, later today, because it's just so good. She's so, she starts out as like a model, trying to be a model for Chanel in Paris, and then becomes this Vogue editor and um, really well-regarded Vogue editor. And she's just incredible. But in my fashion, she writes about this pre-World War II costume ball, and it's thrown by surrealist photographer Andre Durst in 1938. And it's entitled The Ball de la Forêt, or The Forest Ball. And Durst was inspired to throw the soiree after reading, quote, a story, of, and this is a quote from her, a, a story about a mystic chateau in a forest that comes to life with an illusionary, illusionary ball. He had designed his big salon as part of the forest. He invited us to come as something from the forest, plants or trees, brooks or waterfalls, 
satyrs or druids, animals or birds. The possibilities were enormous. His guests fell quickly into the mood of fantasy. They made their entrees by the pool. One great group came as a flight of birds, another as three trees walking solemnly towards the guest. A waterfall was depicted by rippling tinsel, falling cascades from a woman's hair. I mean, this is just wonderful. She does this incredible job of just setting it up. The big salon had been turned into a ballroom through the glass through the glass wall of which we could see the magnificently lit forest, the only light in the room coming from flaming candles on tree-like stands and the flames of the fire against the forest. So she like I said, she does this wonderful wonderful job of of painting and bringing this this world into light um, and life. And what makes this excerpt from her memoir all the more interesting is that she gives credence to this legendary rivalry that April was just talking about between Scaparelli and Chanel, and that really came to a head at this party. So Chanel, she writes, arrived at the party wearing, quote, a diaphanous green gown that moved like fern fronds moving in a breeze when she moved. It was cocoa blending into nature, but still cocoa. And of Scaparelli, who lives up to her surrealist reputation, Ballard writes, she arrived in a rough brown cloth that looked like tree bark with branches extending from her arms and the crown of her head, several cloth and feather birds perched on her shoulders, whimsical, humorous, always make it look easy, Scap. And Bettina goes on that Scap Arelli arrived shortly after Chanel. Um, and after getting the louder applause, Bettina says she saw Coco's smile fade, end quote. And apparently Chanel had even made Scaparelli a costume to wear for this evening. And what Scaparelli showed up in was not it. So she was not happy at all. And Bettina writes about how later on in the evening, the women were both dancing on the dance floor and Scap was, you know, dancing surrounded by many a drunken admirer. Her tree branches swaying to much delight when Chanel, quote, danced towards Scap her billowing green skirt making the forest floor for Scap's brown tree. The two women danced together and then, quote, Coco danced forward, her hips and arms swaying and Scap laughing, kept dancing back until Coco finally caught her and pulled her into her arms the way a man would have, their faces inches away from each other, both women grinning, laughing, dancing. Coco leading danced Scap back, back, back until she was against one of Durst's Four standing candelabrias. <laughs> Coco released her and stepped away. Then her halter, oh, and for a moment, Scap stood there, not realizing what had happened. Then her halter of branches, her costume of tree bark caught fire, an azure shimmer appeared over her shoulders, rising up from her back. And Bettina writes, I'm dreaming. I thought this is a nightmare before she and other partygoers proceeded to throw water on Scap dousing the flames. So I ask you, April, knowing what you know of this legendary rivalry, mm -hmm. is this story fact or fiction? See, okay, I vaguely remember about this party. I don't remember the whole flame situation. And it seems like that would be something, you know, pun intended here, that would be burned into my brain. <laughs> um, Seared, have you? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, I think I'm going to go with the party definitely happened, but, and, and maybe they got into it a little bit, but she didn't set her on fire. Well, you are correct about the party. You are not correct about her setting her on fire. <laughs> How did I like completely just like not 
soak that into my brain. That's wretched. But I was also super tricky because this excerpt I just read actually combines two different experts from two different accounts. And one is the first description of all the guests arriving. It's beautiful. um, Is from Bettina Ballard's book, Memoir. And she does write about this incident, but all she says is this, and I'm going to read it. She writes, there was a near disaster when Chanel costume as herself, dared Scaparelli as a surrealist tree to dance with her and with purposeful innocence steered her into the candles where Scaparelli took fire. The fire was put out and so was Scaparelli by delight. Lighted guests squirting her with soda water. This incident added enormously to the anecdotes about the party that provided Paris with conversations for many days. So that's all she wrote about it, which is kind of astounding. She speaks quite highly about both women in this book, and she gives so many incredible. You have to read the book, dress listeners. Um, but this excerpt that I read that kind of made this this dramatic storytelling is actually from a fictionalized book. And the book is called, um, let's see if I can find it. It's called The Last Collection, a novel of Alice Scaparelli and Coco Chanel by Jean Mackin. This author really did her research and it's a really fun fictional account of this rivalry between these two friends and these two women. Um, And I think it surrounds a young woman who comes to Paris and like befriends both of them. And so kind of goes back and forth. But it's a super fun fictional historical fiction book based in the world of Parisian haute couture in the pre-World War II era. So I highly suggest checking it out. Fun. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. The new year is the perfect time to start building credit scores. Because when your credit scores increase, your opportunities do too like loan approvals and lower interest rates. Chime makes it easier to keep building your credit with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. You can use Credit Builder everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. Chime helps you build your credit score safely by using your own money to make everyday purchases and on-time payments. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a $200 qualifying direct deposit. And don't stress, there's no annual fee or credit check required to apply and get started. Start building your credit history and finding new opportunities with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay. All right. Well, so what? Now I'm two for one. No. One. One. Two for three. Two for three. Right? I got two right and one wrong. You got... One right and two wrong. Oh, sorry. Okay. I'm, I'm really bad at this. Okay. Um, <laughs> I cannot keep scoring. I'm tennis. zero for four, so. <laughs> okay. So I have two more questions for you. <clears throat> All right, you ready? You give me hints on these now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the next one is, which of the following designers remarked to a reporter, quote, I cannot sit down and tell anyone, especially a stranger, the story of my life. There is my work. Judge that. So, your options are A, Madame Gray, a.k.a. Alix Burton, B, Coco Chanel, C, Cristobal Balenciaga, D, Valentina. I don't think people were like, I mean, I know she was famous in her day, but I don't know how many people are like openly critiquing Valentina's wardrobe or um, designs. Um. There's my work, judge that. Mm-hmm. Chanel is famously outspoken. <gasps> Who was the other one? Balenciaga. Balenciaga and, famously never gave interviews. And who's the other, the fourth? Madame Gray. So it's either Chanel or I don't know enough about uh, Madame Gray to know if it's either Chanel or uh, Madame Gray is my guess. Can you give me a hint? Well, this um, this quote appeared in McCall's in 1965. It still could be Balenciaga or Madame Grey. <laughs> I'm going to go with Chanel, I think. Ding, I ding, 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 ding. Yeah. You are correct. So, okay. So I just want to explain why I wrote this question the way that I did. And so the options were Madame Grey, Coco Chanel, Cristobal Balenciaga, and Valentina. And all four of them were notoriously kind of like either recluses um, or pathological liars who kind of like made up these (laughs) crazy backstories of their lives, which weren't true in the case of Chanel and Valentina. And then, of course, Balenciaga um, just never gave a single interview in his entire career until he retired and he gave one. So so the, the, the gist of the question was that it could have, in theory, kind of been any of these people, but it was Chanel. Woohoo! And when did she come back after World War II? When did she reopen? I can't remember. It was it was it was in the re, in response to uh, the new look, which she hated. Um, so it was. I can't remember exactly what. I think year. it was like 1951 or something. And she dies in 1971, and then of course is famously followed by Karl Lagerfeld. Um, okay. All right. Yay! I got one. Yay! Woo-hoo! Okay. One for five. One for five. All right. Okay. Here we one go. More. This is our final question of uh-huh. the. Of the April and Cast Fool's Day. <laughs> All right. Are you ready? <clears throat> yep. Okay. When asked about their contemporaries, Coco Chanel and Jean Pitou, this designer responded, quote, 
Honestly, I don't see what Chanel or Patu have brought or added to the profession, though I admit they both have a good eye and are very skillful at widely disseminating the innovations of their colleagues. Uh, your options here are A, Elsa Scaparelli, E, Madeleine Vionnet, C, Elizabeth Haas, or D, Paul Paré. Okay, well, Haas was just up and coming in the 20s, so I don't know. I, I'm assuming this is someone in the 20s because this is when Patu was at his high, you know, Patu was super famous in the 20s and 30s. Chanel was super famous in the 20s and 30s. Scaparelli and both Haas were coming into their own in the 20s. And Poiré was on his way out in the 30s. Can you reread that one more time? Sure. When asked about their contemporaries, Coco Chanel and Jean Patu, this designer responded, quote, Honestly, I do not see what Chanel or Patu have brought or added to the profession, though I admit they both have a good eye and are very skillful at widely disseminating the innovations of their colleagues. And I'll give you a date on this as a clue. It's 1932. I think it's Viennet because v- Poiré doesn't... Okay, 1932, Poiré's like out of the... <laughs> this is like the end of his, of his reign. So I don't think he'd be saying nice things about them any of his contemporaries at that time. I think it's Vionnet because Vionnet is incredibly innovative, haute couturier, and the fact that she says something about them bringing something positive to the field, and it implies that she's a veteran of haute couture. So I'm going to say Vionnet, final well, answer. But, well, let me just clarify. This, this individual is saying they, are, they have a good eye and are very skillful at widely disseminating the innovations of their colleagues. So this person is talking trash. Oh, so it's Scaparelli or Poiré is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Vionette. Okay. Um, okay, 1932 Scaparelli. Okay, when did Scaparelli come into Scaparelli's famous sweaters in the 20s? She started designing in the mid-20s. I think it's like 1925, 1926. Yeah. It's either Scaparelli or Paré. So the question is, what was Paré saying? Um, Chanel or Patu? I guess it's Paré. Ding, 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 ding. Woohoo! You are correct. <laughs> and we have come full circle, friends. Um, that is actually, Cassie, you referenced uh, his autobiography um, earlier, but this little known fact is that. Pare actually wrote three books. Yes, he so did. he wrote one that is in English, basically termed King of Fashion. It's, it has different titles and different it, like, editions sometimes in French and English. Um, and then his 1932 book is called Reveni. Um, and then he wrote another one called Art et Finance, which is incredibly rare and hard to find, but I happen to have a copy on my bookshelf. Um, I have yet to read it all the way through. So um, one day we'll end up donated to, to a collection here or there. But you are correct. It was Paul Pare. <laughs> well, okay. So we both averaged the same. I got, you got one <laughs> out of three and I got two out of six. And dress <laughs> listeners, um, that was really fun. You're going to have to let us know if you liked playing along and if you think we should do these again in the future to test all of our fashion history knowledge, because apparently, you know, there is still a lot to learn. Um, and this was really fun. I had a blast. What about yeah, you, April? It was super fun. And I also just want to um, say that all of these primary source quotes, I didn't necessarily find them. Um, I was going to ask you if you used yeah, this book. Yeah. 
Yep. So, yes, um, many years ago, the publicist uh, for Rizzoli sent me a copy of Pamela Goldbaum's book called Couture Confessions. And, and it's just all these quotes um, from all these different designers, including Alexander McQueen or Lee McQueen for Alexander McQueen and um, Gabrielle Chanel and Dior and Madame Grey and Pierre Balmain and, uh, you know, several others. And it's not just from their memoirs. It's from all these, like, kind of rare and hard-to-find articles. Um, and it's really fascinating. And I loved it so much. And I was trying to figure out how we could make this into an episode. But it just being quotes, it it seemed, it's really fun to read and maybe more difficult to create it like a narrative arc and make it into an episode. I'm like, one day, I'm going to figure out a way to incorporate all of this amazing research that Pamela did um, into an episode of Dress. So today is the day. Go out and get it. I promise you guys, this is like hot goss. Um, (laughs) It's it's super fun and interesting. And um, especially if you're a a fashion historian, like an academic, there's, um, you know, read all the footnotes and find out where she found all these really rare, hard-to-find interviews with these designers. So... Um, love it a lot. It's called Couture Confessions. Yes, we'll put notes to all of the books we referenced today in our show notes so that you can check them out. We did not talk about this at all. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting that that's where our brains both went. Um, and this was super fun. Um, and that really does it for us, Dress listeners. So we hope you forgive us for our opening April Fool's joke. We hope you mm-hmm. had fun playing with us. And we also want to let you know that Right now, we are very cautiously optimistic about, you know, a post-COVID future and have tentatively, and we say very tentatively, rescheduled our dress trip to Paris. So if you'd like more details, please check out likemindstravel.com or you can reach out to Laura directly at Laura Hart and that's H-A-R-T at likemindstravel.com. Yes, 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 yes. Where, where we will explore all things fashion history in Paris, so... You can join along. Also, if you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. And we also love hearing from you all. So please write to us with your own fashion history mystery requests or questions. You can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. And you can also follow along on our Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you can also send us DMs if you have a fashion history mystery request. And at dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, everyone else at iHeartRadio and media that makes this show possible each week. And we will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.